When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact, baby! Hey, everybody. Welcome to Impact Theory. Our goal with this show and company is to introduce you to the people and ideas that will help you actually execute on your dreams. All right, today's guest is a neuroscientist, philosopher, and a five-time New York Times bestselling author. His book, The End of Faith, won the 2005 Penn Award for nonfiction and spent an astonishing 33 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. He has a degree in philosophy from Stanford, a PhD in neuroscience, and he's practiced meditation for more than 30 years, a combination that gives him a very unique perspective that has made him one of the most sought-after thinkers on the planet. He's given multiple TED Talks with millions of views, and his written works have been translated into more than 20 different languages. Additionally, he's written for some of the most prestigious publications around, including the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and the Annals of Neurology, to name but a few. A clear and rational voice, almost without peer, on some of today's most difficult subjects, when he speaks, thousands of people show up in real life and millions listen online. And his ideas have been discussed by some of the most visible and well-respected outlets in the world, including Time, The New York Times, Scientific American, Nature, and countless others. He's also the host of the Webby award-winning podcast, Making Sense, which was named by Apple as one of the iTunes best. So please, help me in welcoming the man who has spent roughly two years in aggregated silent contemplation, one of the four horsemen of the non-apocalypse, Sam Harris. What's up, man? How you doing? Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Absolute pleasure to have you. Yeah, pleasure to be here. I am really excited to dive into some of these subjects, which I think you have just such a fascinating take on. And the thing that I've drawn the most wisdom from with you is what, and, and these are very much my words, how to live a good life. And that's where I want to start. And it'd be really interesting to hear your definition of like what kind of life and way of thinking should we be aiming for? Yeah, well, it's a hard question because I, my notion of human well-being is really open-ended. I don't think we understand what the horizon is uh, if, in fact, there is one for kind of ultimate flourishing of conscious minds. We have a pretty good sense of what we don't want and are, are right not to want. I mean, we don't want to be terrorized and um, depressed and finding ourselves constantly in conflict with strangers, finding our aims frustrated. I mean, so I mean, the, the generic situation we want to find ourselves in more and more is to effortlessly cooperate with creative and happy strangers, right? I mean, that we're, we, there's seven billion of us. We, ha, we need institutions and laws and norms uh, and ways of thinking that take the friction out of pleasurable and non-paranoid interaction with strangers. I mean, it's not just about having, you know, five or so close friends who's got, who have your back, right? I mean, you, like, clearly we're all on the same team on some basic level. And if we can't figure out how to build a civilization where everyone thrives to some degree, 
we'll have the world we currently have until it becomes unsustainable. And because I mean, we're in the, a situation now where I, I think it's reasonable to worry that our default state of partisanship and tribalism and uh, rational fear of the incompatible aims of you know, other groups and other people uh, is unsustainable in the presence of more and more destructive technology. I just think, I think we have to get our act together psychologically and socially in a way that we haven't yet. And when you think about that coming down to the personal level, um, do you think about people as having a, a North Star or a purpose that they should be pursuing? And to contextualize that, I'll say, um, because I always found myself wanting to ask people that, I ended up answering the question for myself. And so for me, the purpose of my life from my perspective is to um, see how much of my potential I can actuate. So how, how many skills can I acquire that have meaning and utility to me that allow me to serve not only myself but others? And so that sense of pushing myself to always get better, to always improve, to show up every day um, and not think about whether I get something, cross some finish line, generate a certain amount of wealth or anything like that, but just do I sincerely approach the idea of bettering myself in a very specific direction based on what I want to accomplish in my life or not. And if I do that sincerely, then I say that the day or the life has been a victory. And if I don't do that, then to me, I'm pointed in the wrong direction. Do you have any sort of guiding light like that that say you would try to pass on to your children or that you yourself have for you? Well, I, th I think that's a good one and I, I share it, but I can imagine uh, other versions of having a, an aim which don't really totally overlap with that. I mean, so, you know, it would be you know, someone could decide, for instance, that they have a talent that is highly marketable, and what they want to do is make as much money as possible, so that they can give a lot of it away to help people. I mean, money money is is just energy, right? It just you know, if you are making billions of dollars and you're giving billions of dollars away to good causes, well, that you know, on an effective altruism metric, that's that's much better than you going to Africa yourself and handing out food, you know, in a famine, right? You want to be bankrolling thousands of people to do that, right? Uh, and if you have a skill, you know, if you're a great singer or whatever, and and uh, it may be some a skill that you didn't spend a lot of time to acquire, right? So you you don't you don't have this whole mastery story that you have and that actually resonates with me. Um, so that. That would be a good life, you know, provided you can extract the psychological satisfaction from it. Because most of what we experience in philanthropy is, uh, when, it, when it's telescopic in this way, when you're just signing a check, you're not necessarily connected to the good you're doing. And I can imagine uh, someone doing immense good in the world by signing very large checks, but not actually internalizing the gratification of that. On some level, we have to be aware of the possibility of rowing in two boats simultaneously. There's what the effects are in the world of how we're living. So you know, we, we want to have a, a good impact on others, but we actually want our conscious states of psychological pain and pleasure to be mapped in some rational way to the kinds of effects we're having, right? So you don't want to be a callous person who's just leaving devastated and unhappy people in your wake and taking pleasure in that. I mean, that, you're, you're a psychopath if that's, that's how you're tuned. Um, but you also don't want to be a person who's doing a lot of good in the world, but not able to internalize the felt sense of your connectedness to others because you're, you know, you're too neurotic or you're too distracted or 
you're just not you know connecting with others so it's really interesting and i don't think i've ever heard anybody else talk about that notion of making sure that you're mapping what you're doing to sort of be outwardly altruistic to actually map to your own um, internal state of well-being if you will and hearing the discussions that you've been around islam and how beliefs and ideas can be really dangerous made me ask a question of how um and basically I'll, I'll quickly summarize so you've got people that they have a book and the book has ideas and things that they are meant to believe and then act in accordance with and because of where they grew up or you know what their parents and the society around them taught them they internalize those beliefs and if we could through um, communicating our ideas well to them get them to see um, something that caused more well-being for other people that that would be a better way to move their belief system so one, do you believe that a belief system is malleable in that there's some element of, well, you could choose this set of ideology or you could choose this. Um, and I don't know if you would say that one of those is, is more true than the other, but certainly one may take us closer to well-being than the other. Um, and if you think that belief systems are, by their very nature, malleable things, what would sort of be the belief system in just like a couple tenets that you could hand to somebody that you think would help them maximize their own well-being as well as serve a greater good? Speaking generically, uh, I think having our beliefs map onto reality to some degree is obviously good because if, if they're not, you're just bumping into hard objects. You know, what you admit, like if your map is completely wrong, you are bound to suffer, right? So we have to be in a situation where radical ignorance can't be bliss, right? So that's that's one principle. Now, there could be a looseness of fit. There could be situations where being strictly right about what's true may be non-optimal, right? There may be, it may be useful to have a, a slightly delusional self-serving bias, right? To think you're coming off better than you are. Like it may give you more enthusiasm for your life and more confidence. But Anything that's too out of register is just delusion, right? And other people notice, and other people treat you like somebody who's just not tracking in a reality. Uh, and so that's one principle. So I think we want our beliefs to be true in some basic sense. And therefore, we want to be open to new evidence and better arguments perpetually, right? Because if, you're, if you close yourself off, if you say, well, listen, I'm done. I'm done thinking about reality and I know what's true, then again, when more data comes in, you know, when something's surprising, when, when, when one of your intuitions proves to be faulty, if you can't error correct, again, you're just gonna fall out of alignment with what's going on in the world and what, with what other people think is true as well. So the, really the only mechanism we have to do that is human conversation. We, we have to be open to having other people point out errors in our thinking and we ha in, 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 in the conversation we have with ourselves, we have to do likewise. We have to be continually open to the possibility that we might be wrong. And in fact, we're very likely to be wrong a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, then hence the virtue of getting educated and surrounding yourself with smart people and reading good books and just exposing yourself to the kinds of lessons that other people have learned over, you know, thousands of years and are learning in real time right now. And you can live vicariously through. You don't have to make all the errors that everyone is made right around you. So you, you don't have to, it's like you can look at Lance Armstrong and say, okay, well, it's probably not, not a good idea to lie, you know, relentlessly about something 
and then try to punish the people who caught you in your lies and then get caught and have to wind up on Oprah apologizing, right? I mean, that's, you know, you can, you can internalize that lesson and understand something about the, the ethics and reputational costs of lying. Uh, so given that, con- given that conversation and an openness to the intrusions of other people's thinking is really a, the, the best game in town for uh, understanding what reality is and how to navigate within it, then you can see how non-optimal and you know, ultimately dangerous dogmatism is. Now, dogmatism is just holding to an idea no matter what else comes into view, right? So there's nothing you can say to challenge this. I'm, I'm so, you know, I'll talk to you about all this stuff, but over here, there's something that I care about, some proposition, you know, some assertion uh, that something is true that I care about so much, I'm so emotionally attached to it, that not only is it non-negotiable, if you continue to push over here, I'm going to get angrier and angrier, right? I'm going to, I'm going to threaten you with violence, right? That is the default state of organized religion, right? Historically, and you know, certain religions now have kind of relaxed their intolerance to a degree where the, the, the violence isn't explicit, but that is the, not only is that the default of faith-based religion, they have a, a way of thinking about dogmatism. I mean, dogmatism is a good word in the context of religion. I mean, Christian dogma is not, is not a derogatory term. They call it dogma for a reason, right? Uh, certainly the Catholics do. So the, this, this notion that you can believe something strongly without evidence, or certainly without good evidence, or without evidence that can survive pressure from outside. So the, the idea that wanting evidence is a perversion of your circumstance, right? So like, you, you know, you really, if you, if you buy this thing in the bag that, you, that I haven't shown you, you are, that, that redounds to your credit, right? Uh, it's just, it's, one, it's not true because the experiential core of these religions, I mean, the experiences like unconditional love, say, those can be experienced. I mean, it's not that everything in our religious literature is, is untrue, but there's nothing that has to be believed on insufficient evidence to be explored. And so I, what I recommend here is that we really adopt a scientific attitude everywhere. We don't partition our thinking about reality where we say, well, here's the stuff over here where super important, but we can't think about it too rigorously, right? In fact, to think about it too rigorously is to corrupt it. And then over here, we've got you know science and technology and you know engineers calculating whether a bridge is going to you know withstand the weight of the traffic on it. And there we can think rigorously. So you know, don't tell me about rigor with respect to meaning and you know what we're, what's worth living for and what's worth dying for and you know what what is love and compassion and well-being. Like that's all that has to be. Just, we have to be hostage to a conversation that our ancestors were having 2,000 years ago. And we have to imagine that certain of our books were dictated by the creator of the universe to organize all that. But over here, let's get, let's get it all dialed in because we really care about how our smartphones work. Right? It, makes, it makes no sense. It's trying, to, trying to resolve that tension is something I've spent a lot of time on. It's, it's interesting to me that that tension exists and it makes me come back to, okay, why doesn't that tension exist in my own life? And the organizing principle that I use, and I think a lot about like, what would somebody pass on to their children? Now I've decided not to have kids, so I will never get to answer this, but I spent a lot of time thinking about what are the organizing principles? You've referred to ideas as sort of the operating system of the mind. 
And I, that seems very apt to me. So what are the organizing principles that I would give somebody to think in a certain way? And one of the things I'm obsessed with, and I think I explain this so poorly, I don't see it light people's eyes up. And I'd love to figure out how to say it well, which is this, skills have utility. Now what I mean by that is learning architecture is interesting because it allows you to build a structure that could protect somebody, allows you to build a structure that to really make it basic, um, like the one, I forget exactly what country it's in, but the seed vault, right? Like you understand architecture well enough and how to ventilate things and all the things that seeds would need to like live for a very long time so that we could replant if we had to. Learning those skills had a purpose and that purpose allows for something to happen. And so let's take Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which I know that you do jiu-jitsu. Mm -hmm. Everything that you learn in jiu-jitsu has a real-world implication, and that real-world implication is, one, if you got into a fight, you'd probably be more likely to be able to successfully defend yourself, and that in and of itself is, is so profound as to be worth the time. Now, there's obviously all kinds of other benefits as well, but once people understand, oh, okay, these skills have utility, then I need to be fiendish about increasing my skill set because it has this real world application. So the, the problem that I get into where people are dogmatic about anything, mm. whether it's religion or like I wrote this belief system, okay? It was the 25 things that I had to do to my mind in order to go from being a good employee, which I always lovingly refer to as sort of a slave-like mentality. Mm. I kept my head down, did as little work as possible and avoided punishment at all costs. That's where I started. That's what my parents right. taught me to do. And to get out of that and to become an entrepreneur, there were these very simple, write-downable things that I had to choose to believe and act in accordance with. And if you came to me and said, hey, Tom, by the way, number 14 on your list doesn't make sense and it doesn't make sense for this reason, I think you misunderstood something about your own journey, I'd be like, that's so rad, because now you're giving me something that has more utility than the thing that I've used right. thus far. Right. One, wh why do you think that breaks down? What is it that people value more than that? Is there some internal thing? And then what process can people use to become more aware of what's guiding their decision-making? Because I think a lot of people, I don't know if it's just at a feeling level, it's like a limbic thing or what? Well, I think it's a framing problem because most of what people care about can be thought of as a skill, right? I mean, well-being is a, is a skill. Not suffering unnecessarily is a skill. Regulating noticing your emotional life and regulating negative emotion is a skill. I saw, you know, I have a meditation app and, you know, meditation is a skill. It's a, it's a very useful one. And I'm spending a lot of time teaching you know, what's now referred to as mindfulness meditation. And the, the moment you begin practicing mindfulness, which is just, just learning to pay close attention to the nature of your experience, you're not adding anything to your experience. You're just noticing what it's like to be you moment to moment but in a way that is not reactive. You're not grasping at what's pleasant or pushing what's unpleasant away. You're just, I mean, to make this concrete, I mean, let's say you have a fear of public speaking, right? So you, you, you're about to go out on, out on stage and you feel anxiety. The, the usual, the default state of someone who doesn't want to have that experience is just trying to figure, is, is one to, you know, in advance worry about that experience. I mean, the anxiety is kindled just by the mere thought of what you have to do. Then, once you feel the butterflies, you are at war with them, right? You, you contract, your mind contracts around it. Your conversation with yourself is, is an unhappy one. It's like, why the fuck am I this person who just can't? Like, I see people do this all the time. They're, they're relaxed. I'm unhappy. 
you know, when am I, and you're, you're, you're talking to yourself, you're not noticing it because you're, the thoughts just come up from behind you as fast as, as, as they can, and they seem to be you, right? You're identified with each thought that emerges in consciousness. And most people live their lives as though there's no alternative. We're not given a rule book for how to operate a human mind, right? And there's no place in a normal education where, 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 uh, where it's even indicated that there's an alternative here. And so we get, we kind of stumble out into adulthood, more or less assuming that we have, we'll always have the minds we have, and that really there's, you know, we, the only thing we can do to really upgrade our firmware is to just add new content. You know, we can read books, we can, we can uh, develop uh, interests, but there's nothing at the sort of root level of our emotional and cognitive life that can change. And so mindfulness is a way of kind of dropping a little bit lower and, and realizing, so in this case, if you're feeling anxiety, there's actually a, a place from which you can just feel it, right? And, and be actually indifferent to it or anything else you could be feeling. I mean, just, just notice that there's even a, an unpleasant sensation. I mean, first you can notice that anxiety isn't even that unpleasant. I mean, it's, it's so close to excitement in its actual physiology that really the difference between excitement and anxiety is more or less just the, the, the framing. It's just the story you're telling yourself. You know, if you felt these, these tingles uh, and this, you know, slightly adrenalized response, right before you know you're about to go on a roller coaster that's part of why you're going on the roller coaster you like that experience right but the fact that you feel that way when you're about to have an interview or you're about to you know walk out on stage that's intolerable right so just dropping back and and realizing the the power of the framing is is again this is a skill that is a fairly esoteric one but now you know many people are are learning it you know the secrets out um and it has immense utility because then you can realize that the the half-life of negative emotions is incredibly short. I mean, one, you could you can actually be psychologically free even in their presence, right? Your 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 freedom and your well-being isn't even predicated on getting rid of the physiology, right? Like it can it can still be there. But if you're not continually thinking about all the reasons why you should be anxious the physiology dissipates very, very quickly. And that's true for anger, it's true for anything that, that is uh, classically negative. And uh, so to come back to your question, but, you know, but many of the things that people think they want out of life, they either think are, or, or, many, or many of the, the, the ways they're keeping score about how good their lives are or aren't, they're not seen as these are either, you know, this experience is being delivered to them either based on the skills they have or the skills they've never thought to acquire, right? And uh, yeah, so that's, uh, and that's one thing I would add to the, the picture of the, the usefulness of skills. I wanna talk about the emotional control that you bring up. I think that's super powerful. When my wife and I were first married, my problem was I have a very slow fuse or a very long fuse. And so it takes a lot to get me angry. And that was actually a big complaint of hers. Right. She'd be really annoyed. Something would happen, someone would cut in front of us in line and I wouldn't freak out. And she wanted me to freak out. Mm -hmm. And she wanted me to like just bask in how unjust it was. And she would really lament that. And it just seemed so strange to me. But then when I got mad, I would stay mad. Yeah. And there were times I would stay mad eight, 10, 12 hours. And I was working so much at the beginning of our relationship. The only time that we really had together as husband and wife would be for part of a Saturday. And 
I would inevitably, she would say something, it would upset me, I would get pissed, and I would stay pissed the entire time. But then as you said, once you stop reinforcing it, which I would do, unfortunately, I'd be reinforcing, reinforcing, reinforcing it, then something would happen, it would change my neurochemistry, I'd forget, like, why was I so mad? Every single time, I was like, why did I just waste that time being mad? So I ended up writing myself this letter, and I gave it to my wife, and I said, read that to me the next time I get pissed off. And in the letter, I said, hey, me, it's me. I have no hidden agenda here as to why I want you to calm down other than the fact that you know that if you end up being pissed for several hours, you're, you're going to regret it every single time. And right now, I want you to laugh out loud. And for however long it takes, just laugh out loud. You know, studies show that you can't laugh out loud and remain pissed. And so I gave it to her. I got pissed. She read it. She only had to read it once. It was so profoundly transformational to see that just by laughing out loud, I couldn't stay angry, mm -hmm. that it really helped me get control of my emotions so that I knew I can do a, what I'll call a state shift. I don't think I've ever heard you use that kind of language, but mm -hmm. if I'm angry, I'm choosing to stay angry. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, I hadn't found meditation at that point, so I had to sort of brute force my way to that. What can people do to learn to get control of their emotions? Mm -hmm. Well, I, the first thing to realize is that they already have control. They could, virtually anyone watching this, uh, I would expect, can do this under certain circumstances. So the, the one example I would have you recall is, I'm sure this has happened to almost everyone, you're in some state like that, you're, you're angry, you've just gotten triggered by something, uh, but then the phone rings, right? And the phone, it's, it's, you're getting called by somebody who, this is not someone for you to process your anger with, this is like a business call, or like you have to function, right? And it actually perfectly interrupts your state. You actually can just reset and uh, have the conversation, and the physiology is dissipating very, very quickly there. Your attention is on something else, and you're just having to function. Now, of course, if somebody, if, if it's a friend or your mother or somebody who you can complain to, well, then you'll, you'll jump on and you'll, you'll amplify this state because you'll, you'll have a reason to talk about it. Uh, so you, you can interrupt these states and simply put your attention on something else and, and, then, you know, and then it dissipates. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com.
If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride. Because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with ebay motors brake kits led headlights exhaust kits turbochargers bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. One thing that uh, I'm really curious to know, you seem just freakishly educated on a whole lot of topics. What is your process for learning? How do you go about intaking data how do you start do you pull threads what thread do you pull first if you do like how do you really begin to educate yourself on any given topic well i don't really have uh i mean i I take in a lot of information and i always have so that's you know and not in necessarily an efficient or smart way i mean so i don't i don't have you know life hacks that that uh, optimize me as a a a consumer of information so you like you know i know there are ways that are recommended to read a book so as to extract the, the, you know, the, the actionable information as, as quickly as possible from it. I have never been uh, uh, an adopter of any of those ways. So like, you know, and I mean, we're still, I basically read everything at the same speed. So like I read everything like it's scripture. So if it's, you know, you know People Magazine in a, the waiting room of a dentist's office, I'm reading that at the same speed that I'm reading, you know, a, a work of philosophy or neuroscience. And the big change of late, I mean, you know, I guess this probably happened somewhere around 10 years ago, is that once I realized that there's functionally an infinite amount of information to consume, you know, it's doubling in the sciences every three to five years, and, you know, there are literally thousands of good books that I will wish I had read, but I will never get around to reading, uh, I've become a very fickle reader uh, in the sense that I, you know, I, I cut my losses very early. The sunk cost fallacy has completely disappeared for me. The idea that I've, you know, spent five hours or five days on this thing, so I better just finish it. Right? That used to be my orientation with respect to reading books. Now I'll, I'll discard a book, uh, you know, just on a whim because I know there's a, an infinite amount of stuff I want to read. You know, I don't go into the table of contents and 
look at the structure of the book and then go to the index and then look at the topics and then I mean I, I just start on page one and start reading and then when I get bored I stop you know and uh, so that's uh, you know do it do with what do with that life hack what you will <laughs> but um, I do continually I mean I'm either listening to audiobooks or podcasts or the news when I'm working out or commuting or or um, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, constantly taking in information, you know, fairly passively when I'm multitasking. Uh, so there's not, you know, I mean, the one thing that, that I don't have a lot of in my life is music because, I, you know, I can't write to, to music, certainly not music with lyrics. I can't podcast to music, obviously. Uh, and I've decided that there's so much that I'm interested in. There's so much that I want to know that basically... I just hear music by accident now. I mean, I just like if someone else is playing music, or if I walk into a store, there's music associated with the film. It's getting in, but um, otherwise, I'm just you know, I'm, I, it's just a fire hose of information pointed at my head most of the time. Yeah, oh, I get that. Yeah. So, despite the uh, that perchance haphazard way that you're reading, it does seem, at least from the outside, that you are striving. I would say pretty truly for excellence. Help me reconcile. So. One of the things I struggled with with meditation was it felt decidedly feminine um, and in a way that as somebody who I felt, I felt that um, certainly growing up that I was far more on the feminine end of being a guy than anything else. And so for me, my journey certainly to being an entrepreneur was one of toughening up. Um, and so anything that, that made me sort of feel that old school sort of gentle way, um, I would push back on. And it's why I didn't meditate for a long time. Uh, but I see you, you're doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You're somebody who obviously cares about martial arts and being able to fight and defend yourself. I've heard you talk very eloquently about um, violence and clearly in your professional life, you've just even just what you've done in the writing, let alone the lecturing, you've already achieved such massive success. Refuse to believe that there wasn't a just massive amount of energy behind that. So how do you think about meditation in that context? Is this like going to war with your mind and you're, I'm going to come out the other side having faced demons uh, and having won some sort of victory that allows me to perform at a higher level? Or am I totally missing all of this and it needs to be a letting go, a, a more peaceful, relaxed, sort of transient experience? Yeah, well, I mean, first, it's a very common association. I, I, I totally understand it. And it's presented in many ways where, yeah, you, under that framing, you can just feel the testosterone leaving your body, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's not my orientation. It is a lot like jujitsu for the mind. And it's, and it's a lot like, it, it, I mean, what's so beautiful about jujitsu in particular is that you can have this massive effect in the domain of violence while being relaxed. It is what Aikido off, you know, advertises itself to be, but it's a much more, you know, at least in my estimation, a much more effective version of that same underlying ethic, where you can, like, you can control someone uh, and use as little violence as as necessary, and basically just use a superior knowledge of physics and leverage and position against them. So it's it's a very, it can be incredibly relaxed and yet. Um, Given what the circumstance is, it can be a, a, a very high testosterone experience. You know, it's not it's a kind of quintessentially um, uh, masculine thing to be doing. But 
you can internalize the same sort of structure and that's largely what meditation is because basically the, the default state is one of being attacked and ambushed all the time by your thoughts and by your reactivity and by uh, you are being taken in by assumptions and, and illusions and not know, you know, just, you just you, you're in a fog uh, not you personally, but, you know, one is. And, um, you know, even when you learn to meditate, you're in this fog most of the time. I mean, and so, you're cu- so the practice is one of continually breaking the spell. You are constantly on the mat, constantly finding yourself in a position of some surprising disadvantage, right? Like, it's like all of a sudden there's a rear naked choke <laughs> that's, you know, three quarters applied, right? And you need an answer for that. And... Not knowing the answer is just synonymous with death, right? It's like you're, you're just getting, you know, you're just, you'll be as miserable for as long as, as circumstances dictate in the absence of this. Really of fast, this and, and I yeah. shudder to interrupt this because I found it so interesting yeah. tying it to BJJ, but um, I need to know why is it, or I want it said, why is it that the identification with the I or the, these never-ending thoughts, why do they create suffering? Well, it's just the ego is, at bottom, it is itself a kind of contraction. I mean, when you look at what you, this feeling of self is, right? So I mean, let's just talk about what the, the, the sense of self is. The sense of self, for most of us, is not a feeling that we're identical with our bodies. Most people don't feel identical with mm-hmm. their physical bodies. They feel like they're passengers inside their bodies, right? They, like, they're like, my body's down here. Like, these are my hands. These are my legs. You know, I obviously care about these things. You know, if, if you know, I, I, you know, I, this, these are where my pains and pleasures are coming from. But I'm up here in the head, and I'm a kind of passenger. I'm a witness of this. Uh, and if you look, I mean, most people, when they try to pay attention, they try to find themselves. They try to, you know, they uh, they try to meditate. They feel that they're a locus of attention in the head, behind their face, behind their eyes. You know, looking out at the world, and the world is not self. You know, you're you're over there. I'm looking across space at you. I'm here behind my face, and my face is a kind of mask, really. I mean, it's like I'm not I'm not identical to my face. I mean, I, I, it's its states matter to me. Like if I have some weird expression on my face, you know, or like someone said, like, well, we're gonna, can we take a picture of you? And you can't figure out how to smile, and you you feel uptight. Like you're you're reading the state of your face as I mean, your emotions are playing on your on your face, right? The, the signature of the emotion you're feeling has a lot to do with what you feel in your face. Um, and it feeds back into your mind. If you force yourself to smile, you, you can you actually feel a state of happiness coming in your, in your mind. Uh, but people feel like they're behind their face in their head, right? And so that, you know, kind of homunculus, that, that, that person in the head, which we know doesn't make any sense neurologically. There's no place in the brain where there could be a little, you know, consciousness that is one thing that is this stable self that's looking out through the eyes, right? Uh, there's a flow of experience, and you know it's it is invoking you know many regions of the brain at all times, and there is no you you are identical to this flow of experience. This this stream of consciousness is what you are as a matter of subjectivity, right? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that it's not arising in the brain or that bodies aren't real or that there's no physical universe. I'm saying as a matter of experience, there is just this flow of consciousness and its contents. And yet we seem to put this unchanging center to it. And that is a, 
the what what that is, you know, what the, what is giving us that feeling that there is an unchanging center to this flow, is this sort of this contracted identification with thought. It is a kind of thought. It is just each moment of, you know, if I'm saying something and it doesn't make sense or it's, it's, it sounds like bullshit, the part of the part the, the the experience in you which says, oh, that's not right, right, that feels like you. Right. I mean, you're not you're not witnessing it as an object in consciousness just arise and pass away. It sort of has come up from behind, and it just feels like that's me. Right. And but that thing is always happening. That that's me feeling is always happening. And so you just feel like you're in your head behind your face. Right. Well, for two reasons. There's two sides of this coin. So much of our of of what we're thinking is making us miserable, right? So much of it is unpleasant. So much of it is causing anxiety. We got, we, you look at your to-do list, you got 50 things on it. You just feel like, oh my God, this is, the day is not long enough, right? This is, you know, the state, and that's a good, you know, that's a, you know, a high-class problem to have, right? There are, many, you know, there are worse problems. Uh, this is the state we're in. And the obverse of that is when we're really just connecting with life in a joyful, creative, beautiful way. Like when you look out the window and it's the most beautiful sunset ever, and you are just looking at the sunset, right? You're not, like you're fully connected with its beauty. Uh, those are all moments where you're losing this sense of, of self. But the difference between meditation and those moments is that you're not really aware of losing the sense of self in those moments. You're not, you're not really aware of what is... Uh, freeing about those moments, and you can't do it in other circumstances. Like, like you can't, like you know, I need the I need the beautiful sunset. Just looking at your shoe isn't good enough for me, right? But with, with meditation, I can actually look at your shoe in the same way that I look at the sunset. Right? So that's the like what's 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 happening for people. Most people is that they're waiting for the world to give them a good enough reason to just be present and to be present so fully. That they lose their sense of of self, right? That they're no longer behind their face, you know, just waiting for something good to happen, mm-hmm. right? Or or figuring out how to change the the experience enough so that again they can stop. They're, they're no longer at war. I mean, we're, we're, we're to a greater or lesser degree, we're always at war. I mean, we're we're always fighting something. You know, there's always this like you know you're always noticing something wrong. You're feeling uncomfortable in your body. You're reacting to something that somebody did or you thought they did. You're navigating a social encounter that seems off kilter. You know, it's awkward, and like you're trying to figure out what to say. And that was, that sounded stupid. And like you're 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 just being blown around. And the moments where you really feel good are moments where you can you are, there, there isn't a, a coming to rest, right? Where it's not about the past or future. You know, it's, it's not even about, it's not about half a second ago, and it's not about half a second from now. And the ultimate version of that is to, ju- to uh, entails the dropping of this, this sense of self. Is everything you do about flourishing for you? Unfortunately not. I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean you know, I mean, wisdom would be really being able to track what is going to matter, you know, at the end of the day or at the end of a life. For me, flourishing is a matter of spending your time pleasantly and happily and creatively uh, and having fun, but in all the ways which 
it, it, every moment when someone asks you, well, you know, that last hour, that last day, that last week, that last year, do you feel good about that? Was that a good use of your time? Mm -hmm. That remembering self, that retrospective gesture, that's where people worry about things like meaning, right? I mean, that's like, so it's like there's two, I mean, to use, you know, Danny Kahneman's framing here, there's the experiencing self and there's the remembering self. And the, the remembering self is the self that you're talking to when you say, you know, are, are you satisfied with your life? Whether you're asking yourself or someone's asking you. And the answers that are available in, the, in those moments really determine whether or not somebody has a kind of global life satisfaction, whether they have meaning. And those are, that's the, those are the moments where people feel like, you know, I need religion. I need to know, I, you know, I need to know how the, the, the far future is going to be. I need, like, I need some story to tell myself that is fundamentally consoling. But the experiencing self, the, the self that is just going moment to moment, feeling pains and pleasure and uh, just dealing with, dealing with this the very short you know, time horizon, uh, I think that is, that's fundamentally our real self. I mean, the, the remembering self is, the, is a version of that. You know, if you ask me, are you satisfied with your life? And I, you know, spend the next 30 seconds telling you about that. That is yet another, you know, brief chapter in my experiencing self, right? And most of life is, is a story, is, is, you know, is getting, a, getting summed over this, this, this lifeline of the experiencing self. And their questions of meaning and a kind of global story to tell yourself about what this is all about are, are far less important than people think. I mean, I, th I think you want to be playing both games intelligently. You don't want to be absorbed in, in pleasures, which every time you think about your life, have you feeling, God, I'm just wasting my life. I'm just, you know, I'm a superficial guy. You know, I've, you know I, I got wealthy and now I just you know, do heroin and play golf, right? And it's just fun, you know, like whenever you check in with me, I, I feel pretty good because I have, you know, an unlimited supply of heroin and golf. Uh, but it's, you know, I can't really, you know, I'm sort of embarrassed by it every time I have to talk about it, right? That, like, that's not the, you know, you, you, you do want, so over here, you still do want, uh, you want your pleasures to be justified, by good relationships and, a, and a, a world that cares about your inputs and outputs, right? So you're, you're like you want, you know, you want what you're paying attention to all day long to matter to someone else. And we're so deeply social. It's not wrong to want those things. Uh, but again, it's possible to have a, a, a purchase on well-being that is deeper than any one of those things. So that when you lose one of those things, right, when you find out that the the thing you thought people would love, they actually hated, right? You know, the, the television show you wrote or the novel you wrote or whatever. You invested all this time. You had a hope for this thing, but your hopes were disappointed. How long do you suffer over that, right? In the absence of an, this sort of superpower that, where you can actually find an intrinsic well-being to consciousness, it will be for as long as, you know, your you know, bad genes and bad life experiences dictate, right? It's like it's just... You're at the mercy of who you were yesterday. And so, you know, as a skill, meditation is fairly unique in that you can actually reset independent of what's going on. But again, it's not a reason to become uh, totally immune 
to your integrate you know, the effects you're having on the world and what the world is telling you because ultimately you are going to spend most of your time asleep and dreaming you know this in this state with you know in conversation with yourself and in conversation with others no matter how much you meditate i mean i you know i think ultimately there are people who get you know quote fully enlightened and completely break the spell of being identified with with thoughts um, you know, I'm not one of those people, you know, certainly not yet. And uh, so I experienced this fluctuation, but the, fl- the, the fluctu- fluctuation is so important for my well-being that I, that I can talk about it without, you know, hesitation. What do you say to people who the deep fundamental problem in their life is that they're lost? They have no sense of meaning or purpose. They don't know what direction to go into. They're sliding towards depression because it all seems so pointless. Um, yeah. that, that's something that I encounter with people a lot. Um, people will stop me randomly and just be like, help. And I'd love to know, knowing that you have a very limited window of time with that person, you know, what would you say in like 60 or 90 seconds that would hopefully send them on a path that would actually be useful? Well, I would just point out the mechanics of it, which is what is actually going on is that they're lost in thought. They're, they're thinking without knowing that they're thinking basically every moment of their waking life, right? And the, and the character of that story in this case is depressing or, or um, you know, certainly productive of unhappiness. Now, there are two, there are three, at least three possible antidotes to that, and they should try all of them, right? So like if, if we're talking about a clinical depression, it's, it's useful to say that there's a physiology to this that you know, can be driven from below in a way that's not narrowly responsive to their thinking, right? So it's, it'll tend to produce uh, depressive thoughts and the depressive thoughts will tend to feed back on the state. But you know, I don't think all forms of depression are just a matter of what a per- person's thinking. I mean, it can be really, it's, it's best viewed as a kind of disease, you know, of physiology. And so, you know, I'm not against antidepressants at all. I know many people who have you know, received a lot of help from them, and I hope we get better ones in the future. And, and pharmacology is definitely a piece of the, of the solution for, for many people. Uh, and everything else that is good to do that people sort of lose their commitment to doing at the worst possible time should be done. I mean, you have to sort of get behind yourself and push to, to exercise and to socialize and to do things that you know you you may not want to do because those are good for you and help you know break can can break you out of it. But the normal range of psychological suffering, you know, not clinical depression, but just feeling like you know life sucks and you're a failure and there's nothing you know it's like uh, you're just it's you're stuck. That is a story of telling yourself a story, you're thinking, and you can either become more and more mindful of that and interrupt that more and more, uh, and or, and it, and it should be and, you can reframe this continually and tell yourself a better story. Right? You can actually just engineer, you know, you, you can change the code that you're, that you're you know, uh, running moment to moment and I mean, just you know, a very simple one, which I, you know, I use, and I actually recently recorded this in a lesson on the app, you know, just gratitude, just thinking, this is actually, you know, this particular maneuver is, 
I believe comes from Stoic philosophy. I, I didn't actually get it from Stoic philosophy, but this this sort of use of negative imagination where you think of all of the bad things that haven't happened to you, right? So if you're just, you know, if you're stuck in traffic, driving to the job that you don't like, and you're, you're frustrated, uh, you can think of all the things that could happen to you, right, that haven't. And if any one of them happened to you, you would consider your prayers answered if you could just be returned to this moment, right? Like you haven't been diagnosed with cancer, right? You've got two young kids, say, you know, you want to live to see them grow up, and you could be the guy who today is going to find out you've got two months to live, right? And you have to, then the next two months is spent just unwinding your worldly affairs, right? You're not that guy, right? That hasn't happened to you yet. That's just more th- thinking, but it can have a profound effect. You can, you can reframe your experience in a way that doesn't actually change anything material about your circumstance, and it can let the, the light in. And there are many techniques like that that are just a matter of invoking useful concepts skillfully. Tell these guys where they can find you online. The Making Sense podcast is something I spend a lot of time doing. Uh, My meditation app is at wakingup.com. It's called Waking Up. And uh, otherwise, I'm just my website, samharris.org. I'm on Twitter. It's also samharrisorg. There's no dot. But um, you just put in Sam Harris and you'll you'll get an eyeful. (laughs) Yes, very true. What's the impact that you want to have on the world? Well, you know, what I'm spending my time doing is trying to engage honestly with interesting and consequential ideas. I mean, so the net, the, the, the Venn diagram I, I have, you know, I don't, I don't think about it a lot, but when I think about, you know, retrospectively what I have been spending a lot of time doing, I, I seem to keep finding the intersection of intellectually interesting ideas. They have to have some con- connection to science or philosophy or I mean, it just, it has to be the kind of thing that someone would may want to think about anyway because they're just cool ideas. So something like artificial intelligence, right? Very interesting to think about, but it's also hugely consequential, you know, increasingly so. And if we get it wrong, it will, you know, redound to our misery, right? If not extinction, right? So like that is, that's the, the center of the bullseye for me. Something that's interesting, something that's consequential, something that, that getting it, the difference between getting it right and wrong is enormous, right? And that's, so, so those are, that's sort of the landscape where I'm, I'm trying to continually focus my conversations. I love that. All right, guys, truly, there are a few people on this planet that have influenced my thinking more than this man. I hope that you will dive into his world and let it expand your own consciousness and, and discover new things that you're capable of. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.